I don't have a direct number for Nora, of course, so I don't know. Oh, uh, can anyone hear me? To call her. They're talking about me. Uh, but anyway, if you could. um, Hello? Hello? I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Hello? Every one of our interviews for this show starts the same way, with us trying to make sure that we can hear each other. Hello? 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 Now, one of my favorite things to do is to listen to other people's love stories. I, L-O-V-E, hearing about people's husbands, wives, partners, girlfriends, boyfriends, dogs. I love to know about the person you love. Hey, hey, Nora. Hi, hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Okay. I just don't like hearing myself oh, echoing. Yeah, and yeah, we have we're, we have an echo as well. So when we finally did connect, I asked Barbara about her husband Maynard. He was over six feet. He was big boned, but uh, he liked to work out. So um, he had a lot of muscle, and uh, he wore his hair in a crew cut. And everybody was always asking him if he was military. It, he looked intimidating, but then as soon as he smiled, you knew how, what a bear he was, what a teddy bear. You know Howie Long, who does the sports casting for football? Yes. Everybody always said he looked just like him. Barbara, yeah. that's exactly who I was imagining. Really? Yes. Exactly yeah. who I was imagining. Wow, you're yeah. good at describing. I'm good at imagining. <laughs> good team here. Yes. People would ask him how he was, and he'd say, if I were any better, I'd have to be twins. And um, they'd talk about his laugh. When he started laughing, the entire room would shut up and just listen and then start laughing. He was just, he was such an amazing man. He was the type of person who would, when you were talking to him, he made you feel like you were the only person in the world. And uh, he did that to everybody. And in his job, he was a, a safety engineer, and he could put on a suit and meet in the boardroom with the big wigs before a project, or he could go down on the construction site with his cowboy boots and his jeans on and, and talk to the labor and make them all feel the same way. You know, he was, uh, he was extraordinary. Barbara and Maynard. Man, I love Maynard. Just hearing his description. But I fell more in love with their love the more that Barbara talked. They had that kind of relationship where you just want to be around the other person all the time, where even regular, boring stuff is somehow wonderful, because you're doing it together. He traveled a lot, but when he traveled uh, close enough where he could drive, I always went with him. And uh, I would always read to him. We'd get the newspaper, and I'd read to him. I'd I'd read a headline. You want to hear this? Okay. And I'd read it. And (laughs) so, yeah. I love that. It was, it was great. Maynard and Barbara lived in the suburbs of Atlanta. They were building a new house together near one of Maynard's favorite golf courses. They were in their early 40s, gearing up for the rest of their lives together. A really good life together. Maynard traveled a lot for work, but the two of them had a routine to keep them connected even when he was on the road. 
Barbara would help Maynard pack his bags and plan his outfits for every trip. And when he left... I always knew where Maynard was, what he was doing. We kept in constant... We had a lifeline. He would call me when he got to the airport. He would call me when he landed. He would call me when he got to his hotel. Maynard was a safety engineer for Marsh and McLennan. It's a big company. He was so proud to work there. And he'd just gotten a promotion. His next trip was to New York City to meet his new bosses, do business guy stuff, conference rooms, handshakes, acronyms. Barbara had been planning to go along because New York City. But the trip had been condensed to just two days, so Maynard went on his own. I remember helping him pack and telling him, uh, you have to take a jacket. I'm sure you'll go out to dinner. You're in New York City. You have to have a jacket. Um, So I knew what he was wearing each day. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was meetings. So get there early, get through the meetings, get to the airport, and get home to you. That's right, yeah. We were looking forward to our future. We knew what we wanted to do after we retired. We wanted to go up to the North Carolina mountains and um, have a, uh, we wanted to run a bed and breakfast up there. And um, yeah, I guess like everybody, just living day by day, doing what we needed to do. And uh, yeah, living for our future, which was the old saying, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him, tell him your plans. That's specifically why I don't tell him my plans. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it all a secret. I don't tell God anything. No, no, because I have heard that too. Got it? Don't tell God anything. She'll just ruin it for you. Lock it all away in your diary and don't give her even a hint of what you're hoping for. Anyways, Maynard called his bride from the airport. He called when he landed. He called when he got to the hotel before heading over to the World Trade Center to work. Marsh McLennan's home office was in the North Tower, and he was on the 100th floor. And he called me, and he was looking out the window. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He says, oh, you should see this view. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He was, he was like a little kid in so many ways. The date was September 10th. That night, Maynard went to his hotel, called Barbara, and I knew what his plans were the next morning. He knew he had to get up early and be at the office because instead of going out to breakfast, they were going to have a meeting uh, for breakfast. And uh, so he had to be the, uh, in the office about 8 o'clock. And, uh, so, and, I, and I felt good. I knew the, the last words I ever said to him was, I love you. And those were the last words I heard from him. Anyone who was old enough to be conscious of the world around them knows where they were on 9-11. They know where they were when they first heard about what was happening. I was in bed, hungover, in my freshman dorm room. My roommate had turned on the TV and I yelled at her because we had the day off and I apologize for that, Sarah Sparks. Our producer, Hans, was in the first class of a new semester and... His teacher got a call and then hung up and kept teaching. Marcel was in fourth grade in a brand new school. He was in class. 
He thinks that the teacher pulled in a TV and they watched it together. Hannah Meacock Ross was in Colorado. It was a perfect day at the bright blue sky. She was with some of her friends from New York, and one of their dads worked in the towers, and he was freaking out. There were fighter jets flying overhead. There was a run on gas stations. I was in the master bedroom making the bed, and I had the TV on. I was watching Good Morning America. With Weight Watchers, every food has a points value. And now every point works harder than ever. Introducing Winning Points, the way to stay satisfied. Eat what you like and still stay within your daily points range. So you and, and lose. Uh, Charlie Gibson started talking. He said something about a plane hitting the building, hitting the trade towers. That's all I heard. I had never been to New York, and I really didn't know what the trade towers were. These are, of course, the two twin trade center buildings that are down at the foot of Manhattan, that they really are the beacons of New York. It was there that there was the explosion a couple of years ago uh, brought about by terrorists. We, that's all gone through the courts. But this, we don't know anything about, we don't know about anything that has happened here other than the fact that there's obviously been a major incident there. And we're going to go to a special report now from ABC News. And... Uh, I imagined, I think, like a lot of people did, a, you know, like a six-seater Cessna or something, you know, running into the building. And I looked at the TV, and uh, they showed the North Tower, and they showed black smoke coming out of the building. And it was a fire in a very, very large building. And I, I didn't worry. I picked up the phone, and I called Maynard, and, of course, the, the phone went straight to voicemail. I said, honey, I said, I'm watching TV. I said, y'all have a, a fire in your building. And, uh, you know, just give me a call. Let me know everything's okay. For a few minutes, most of the world didn't understand what had just happened. What it meant that an airliner had crashed into the 99th floor of the North Tower. And, um, was it 13 minutes later, the second plane came and crashed into the second building. And it it didn't quite take on the severity at that time. Yeah, it was I, it was confusion. It was a lot of confusion trying to understand what was happening and trying to understand uh, what was going on. We all remember where we were on 9-11, but most of us did not have a family member there. Most of us did not have a husband there. But Barbara did. And she stayed calm and did what you do when things are scary and crazy. She called her best friends, Lisa and Daphne, who live in Tampa. It was funny because I knew knew their schedules, and I knew one would be driving to work, and I didn't want to tell her this while she was driving. And I called the other, uh, I called Daphne. And um, I think I said something about, you know, do you see what's going on? And she said, yes. And I said, Maynard's there. That's where Maynard is. She hung up almost immediately, called Lisa. And within hours, you know, they jumped in the car and uh, came up to Atlanta and stayed with me. We were just, we were so clueless. We did not know what was going on. The last thing that went through my head was that Maynard was dead. There was, it was, it just didn't, 
occurred to me. I thought he got out. When they showed pictures of people running across the bridge, I kept looking at all these people. I knew what he was wearing. I knew that he had on a white shirt and blue pants, blue trousers, and I kept looking for him. There are things that are just too much for your brain to take in, things that are just too much to process. And for Barbara, the possibility that Maynard was dead was not an option her brain could give her. Maynard wasn't dead. He was just missing. Barbara and Daphne and Lisa spend days like this, watching TV, waiting for the phone to ring, lost in the magical thought that Maynard is out there, somewhere. We'll be right back. We're back. It doesn't take long for this act of terrorism to trigger a huge swell of patriotism in the U.S. For a slogan to form, never forget. For the attackers to be identified and for the attack to become a formative point in U.S. politics. But all of that, it wasn't relevant to Barbara. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know anything. I didn't care All I cared about was my husband. I I didn't care this was a terrorist attack. This sounds horrible, but I I didn't care. I didn't care about bin Laden. I didn't care about the hijackers. I just didn't care. I don't know what it's like to look at this happening and seeing a terrorist attack, uh, seeing these people attacking America. I I could never see that. All all I could see was, was something was happening to my husband. And, uh, it was just, we did this for, uh, I, I want to say a week and a, a lot is so fuzzy at that time, so I'm not sure of exact days, but I, I felt like it was like a week and a half. Lisa and Daphne wrap their love around Barbara while they wait, while days slide into one another and details of the attack emerge, and while Maynard continues to not call. But eventually, the magical thinking wears off. I knew if he was alive... I would have heard it from him by now. You know, there was just no way uh, that he would have let me go that long without hearing from him. It becomes apparent that Maynard is not lying in a hospital bed stricken by amnesia. That the last phone call she shared with him would be the last phone call she shared with him ever. That Maynard is one of the 2,977 people who were murdered on September 11, 2001. Typically, when someone dies, you know it, or someone knows it. You're there, or someone else is there. You're notified. You see the body. You pick out clothes for them to be cremated or buried in, whatever your culture or faith calls for. 
Barbara doesn't get any of that. She gets a lot of ambiguity. I don't believe anybody ever specifically told me that he was dead. Not having a, uh, a body was, was fine with me. I'm a big believer that we have a soul and our bodies are just uh, carriers. I, we are not our bodies. There was so much going on. There were so many. I had already begun receiving letters from state officials in New York. And, uh, of course, there are no bodies. And so, you know, the government took over. The government decided they changed all these rules for us. They decided they were going to immediately start uh, printing out uh, death certificates for these people. But we had to get proof. I had to get proof from his business. I had to get proof from the airline. I had to get proof from his hotel um, and send all that and uh, so I could get a death certificate from him. The good thing about paperwork is that it keeps you busy. It gives your body something to do and your brain something to focus on. It keeps you moving. I think I, I, I think I was a robot at the time. I, I just did what I had to do. I, I have a file that must be 12 inches thick of the paperwork involved. It was just, everybody's coming at you. Um, they're trying to help, they're trying to do what they can. Uh, but I, I, it was just, it was inundating. It was constant. I remember sitting at my desk for hours and hours every day doing paperwork, which is probably a good thing. It kept me busy. And then there were the... Uh, everything else, that it was the outerlying uh, ramifications of, of this event that started trickling in. They started talking about war, and they started talking about suits, and they started talking about this and that, and... Maybe you know when you're involved in any lawsuit that's brought on by the federal government, uh, if you're involved, you get every single piece of paperwork, a copy of everything that goes through the courts. All of the families from 9-11 had to do this paperwork. But Barbara is the only person she knows wading through the grief of losing a husband and the chaos of losing him in a terrorist attack and the piles of paperwork that are arriving. 9-11 continues to dominate the news. It's everywhere on magazine covers and newspaper headlines. It's on the news. It's on the TV all the time. But to Barbara, it's not news. It's not about terrorism or patriotism. It was just, it was a horrible event that happened where my husband was killed. And, and that was something I didn't think about. Uh, Maynard was murdered. He was murdered. And um, that came as a shock. And I, I even think about that when people say, oh, he died on 9-11. No, he was killed on 9-11.
9-11 sometimes feels like it belongs to New York, but people from all over the country died. Sometimes it feels like it belongs to America, but people from all over the world died. More than 90 countries lost citizens in the attack. Accounts of New York City in 2001 all refer to New York as feeling really homey and kind and connected, like it was a galvanizing event for the residents of that city. In New York, survivors of the dead and survivors of that day can commune. They can be there and form support groups. They're held up as heroes by the media. They're given the eyes of the world. But I envy the people in New York because they were they had each other. And uh, they were looked at differently. Um, and they were, they, were, they were helped so much. Did you have a way to connect with other 9-11 widows after all of this? Not at all. Not at all. I wish, I wish I had. Um, I remember, I, believe, I think it was Diane Sawyer did a year after 9-11. She did a show and went and spoke with a bunch of 9-11 widows in New York City, of course, and New York and New Jersey. And I remember just glued to the TV, and I'm looking at these women, and I'm just hung on every word they have to say. And Diane Sawyer would walk through some of their houses, and I'd, I'd want to know, are the clothes still in the closet? Do you, do you still have his things? Uh, are there pictures on the walls? Are you still wearing your wedding ring? I'm looking. I'm just observing all these, these things, wanting to know. You know, am, am I wrong? Do I, do I take my wedding ring off? Do I put it on my other finger? When do I stop wearing it? Should I be wearing black? Do I donate his clothes? In suburban Georgia, Barbara is either the only 9-11 widow in town or at least the only 9-11 widow she knows. It's 2001. There won't be Facebook for years, let alone Facebook groups. There isn't Twitter or Instagram. There was nothing that I could I could grab onto uh, to to help me to help get me through this, and and that was one of the times I envied the people in New York City, and uh, I felt I felt very alone. The worst thing was the silence that used to drive me crazy, and I I I got to feeling bad. I felt bad to mention to people that I lost my husband on nine eleven because I would get so upset. So I stopped mentioning it. In fact, I even started lying to people about how my husband died. Uh, I was having dinner with my friend Lisa and her husband, and we were sitting at a bar, and a couple uh, came and sat catty-corner to us, and I believe it was their anniversary. They were young, and we were you know, talking about marriage, and the girl looked at me, and she says, uh, you know, are you married? And I said, no, I'm widowed. And like most people, she said, oh, how did your husband die? And I knew if I said on 9-11 in the World Trade Towers, it would just kill the whole evening. So I said he was killed in a plane crash. And that's, that's my usual go-to answer to a lot of people. It's sad. It's horrible. But then conversation went on again. <laughs> so Barbara learns how to keep Maynard's death close to her to disclose that sparingly to people who can handle it. And that is its own kind of loneliness. Time rolls on. The pile of paperwork grows. Barbara holds a memorial for Maynard, even without his body. She holds a place in her heart for him. 
I remember at the memorial thinking to myself that I wanted to be Jackie O. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, walk through and everybody think, oh, she's so strong. <laughs> but now I'm bawling my eyes out, you know, doing the ugly cry. I believe I, I walked around with an, an, a very, very deep hole in myself. I mean, knowing he, he was dead, knowing he was gone, and I would never see him again. Um, I... The pain was insurmountable. It, I remember going with uh, his boss and uh, one of his co-workers. We went out to lunch one day, and I I could not control myself. I, I began sitting there in the restaurant. I started crying, and I just I couldn't stop. The pain was so intense. It's I, I I've never felt pain like that in my life. Uh, just the the. The pain of knowing I would never, ever see this man again. And uh, it, it hurt. It hurt. And then one day, Barbara gets a notification from the New York police. They found something. He didn't carry a wallet. He carried, like, this portfolio. And I imagine it was sitting on the conference table uh, when the plane hit. And I understood, you know, the force when the plane hit. Things went flying out. And, you know, they found paperwork all the way in Brooklyn, I think. I have no idea how far away that is from Manhattan. But um, they found in really great uh, condition his passport, his driver's license, some credit cards, photos, uh, they found a little love note. I, I always used to write him love notes and, and put them in a suitcase and stuff. Oh, what did the note say? Oh, it would just said, you know, hi, sweetheart. I'm thinking of you. Have a great day. You know, love, Babs. But there's not just Maynard's stuff. The city of New York has an entire forensics team, the largest in the world, that's dedicated to processing and identifying over 22,000 human remains from those victims. Barbara's friend Daphne volunteered to be the contact for the medical examiner in New York, to be the person that they would call when they found Maynard. And in April 2002, they called. And they asked her, do you want to know what it is? And she would take care of it all, and then she would call me and say, you know, they've got something. I didn't want to know what anything was. I, I didn't want to know. Okay, fine. It was a piece of them. The medical examiner in New York cremated the remains and sent it down to Atlanta to a local funeral parlor. I had never seen an entire body that was cremated before. Um, I didn't know how much ashes that it creates. So I went to the parlor, and there's this box, and there's a baggie inside. And I pull out the baggie, and it's like this little dime size. I'm a child of the 70s. I, yeah, we smoke pot. So I'm looking at this, <laughs> this little baggie, and it's, like, it's like, a, like a little dime size of, of pot. You know, it's got this little, you know, couple inches across the bottom. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I thought there would be more. But it's just this, this tiny little layer. And... Uh, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't want to know anything about it. And she didn't, except that it was a part of Maynard come home. 
He was real. She could touch something, not just paperwork and memories. So with part of a body, she could have another part of a goodbye. I knew he wanted to be cremated. We had talked about that. Uh, we both did. He, and he wanted his ashes thrown over uh, the mountains of North Carolina. He said North Carolina was God's country. Barbara and a friend drive to North Carolina. They stop at a lookout point. They get out of the car. We went over there and got the ashes and just started throwing them off the mountainside. <laughs> Not thinking about wind, wind and ashes. And all the ashes <laughs> started flying back to us. And my girlfriend, I was at, at the time, she knew, she knew Maynard. Uh, she was actually with me when I first met Maynard. And we started cracking up laughing. All these ashes are flying back in. It's, it's in our mouth. It's in our face. It's in our hair. There was this man and this little boy that stopped in the same overpass. And they came over, and we looked over at him. We're laughing. And I think my friend said something like, we're just trying to get rid of her husband. <laughs> Which made us laugh even more. And uh, we honestly, we thought, you know, if Maynard's looking at us right now, he is just dying laughing. <laughs> and and we get we get back in the car and there's there's ashes under our nails and everything. And I look and I started licking my fingers. Didn't you say this in your TED talk? Too, I did you? that, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I did. I started licking my fingers. And uh, there was something actually something rather satisfying about that to me. It is. It's um, like now he's in your cells. I don't know how biology yes. works, but I believe it. He's just <laughs> forever. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, February of 2005, I think it was. Uh, they called Daphne and they said, we have another piece. And uh, same same situation. And I go and I pick it up, but I pull out the baggie this time and it's one like one of these large freezer baggies, and it's almost full. And it's like, oh, good lord! I, 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 you know, this was just this was outrageous. I have no idea what this is. To me, that that I thought maybe that was a whole body. I don't know what it was. To this day, I don't know what it was. Uh, I found out by accident the first piece they sent me was a piece of bone. Um, so this piece, uh, I don't know, maybe like a whole torso or something. I don't know. Um, but I, I did the same thing this time just by myself. I rode up to North Carolina. There was a bed and breakfast that Maynard and I had stayed at. And I asked them if they would mind if I uh, dumped Maynard ashes in, in their back. There's a little river back there. And it was just such a beautiful spot. So uh, I, I dumped his, his ashes back there. And then in 2008... They have more because they have a they have a facility set up where it, they learn more and more about DNA as time goes on. And the system that they use gets more and more advanced. They still have tens of thousands of pieces, uh, body parts from 9-11 still. And they're constantly working on on checking these pieces. And as and as the DNA um uh, testing advances, they go back and they recheck everything. So it's quite possible I could still get more. But at this third time, I said, I can't, I know. I said, I can't do this anymore. I, I said, this is just, it's too weird getting my, my husband back in pieces. And I, I don't want to do this. 
We'll be right back. And we're back with Barbara in Atlanta, far away from New York. And as time goes on, farther and farther away from 2001, but not any farther from Maynard or the legacy of his death. The paperwork lasted for years. Things lasted for years. Trials lasted for years. Um, That never quit. Every death has an anniversary. But not every death is a national day of mourning. Not every death adversary is televised or memorialized, becomes a recurring social media meme. But Maynard's is. And while that might be comforting for so many people, it isn't for Barbara. Instead, every September, she finds herself crawling into a little hole. No TV, no phone, no internet. I don't want to see anything. Uh, To this day, I still avoid the anniversaries. And there is one image in particular, which everybody still likes to use. And sometimes I see it in the strangest places, the last places in the world, I would imagine. It's the North Tower with the black smoke coming out. And to me, uh, that's exactly where my husband was. And he was burning up in that in that smoke, and I have this reaction. I, I can't. Whenever I see it, I just it's it's almost like I, I feel like I'm being stabbed, and and I feel this pain inside. And it it I sometimes I even I, I even let out this mild scream. It affects me in such a way, such a physical way, when I see that every time, and. Uh, that's another thing that that, that bothers me. I, I tell people, I said it's like, it's like, say your your partner was killed in a car crash, and they keep showing you the car crash over and over and over again, and you keep watching you 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 keep watching your partner being killed in this car crash. I said that's what it's like when I see. Uh, the building with the smoke or the buildings coming down. I said, it's 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 like looking at that over and over and over again. It's been 18 years since Barbara heard Maynard's voice, since she wrote him that note that was sent back to her. Love, Babs. Time does not heal all wounds. That's just something people like to stitch on pillows and calligraphy on Instagram. Time is irrelevant to this kind of pain or this kind of love. Barbara could still fall in love again, but there will only ever be one Maynard. But there was Maynard. There was reading him newspaper headlines as he drove along the highway. They were sitting up in bed with him, exchanging notes on work projects. There were inside jokes and love notes tucked into books and briefcases. There were millions of little moments over thousands of days they spent together. 
not just that one day that he died. I don't need a specific day. Uh, You know, I still, I am still so immensely in love with this man. And uh, I dated one man for three years, and uh, I did love him. I was in love with him. But I, I remember we were living together, and I remember one day standing in the kitchen, I was looking out the window, and I was thinking about Maynard. And I was thinking if Maynard came knocking on the door right now, I would immediately leave this man I'm living with and go with Maynard. And I thought, how unfair is that? How unfair that, uh, that this man that I am in love with now, who I live with, will always be second in my heart. And, and I thought, that, that's just a, that's wrong. That was just so wrong to me. I ended up breaking up with him shortly after that. Um, that was in, in 2007. And I've never dated since. Uh, I just, I, I, I'm very happy. I know I'm one of the luckiest people in the world for the relationship that I had with Maynard was um, unique, unfortunately. All my friends would say when they, they always say, oh, I want a Maynard. You know, everybody wanted a man like Maynard. And, uh, and, and I realized how lucky I was. And I'm, I'm so happy for what I had. And I see friends now who struggle, who are looking. I, I want someone in love. You know, they go out and they date all the time. They're on all the dating sites and they go to the bars. And they, feel, they, they, they have this need to have this man in their life. And I don't. I think I, I had... Uh, I had uh, the perfect relationship, and I know that I probably could never find another man like Maynard. This episode is going to come out on um, September 10th. Oh. What is it that you want people to think about? What is it that you want them to know? Maybe... Maybe turn the vision around a bit and not look at it so much as the attack that happened on America. But think about the the people. Um, There were so many people of so many different races, so many different ages, so many different, there were, there were people from all over. I don't think people realize the number of people that come from so many different countries. And sometimes I, I know how much I feel alone being in Atlanta, but I couldn't imagine how these people feel being on the other side of the world, having gone through this. But, um, and, and, and I guess Think about the families. Think about the families who, who lost the people that were in there. I mean, there's, you know, we are nothing special. We are all just normal, everyday people. You know, my husband put on a business suit and went into the office. And I, I suppose, I suppose just that. The families that were left behind.
I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Hans Buto is our senior producer. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. I just wanted to remind everyone he was promoted. Hans's job is in jeopardy. <laughs> Hannah Meacock Ross is our project manager, keeps us on track, keeps us working. Jordan Turgeon, helper of all kinds, Ariana Giles, intern extraordinaire, Anna Weggle, key, key, key player on the team, pinch hitter. I don't know enough sports terms. Anna Weggle, teammate. You can find me online at norabourealis.com or on Instagram at norabourealis. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media.